This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome everyone! In today's episode, we talk about women in mountaineering and hillwalking with Professor Emmanuel Tulle from Glasgow Caledonian University. Historically, mountaineering has been a masculine space where women have been marginalized, if not completely excluded. But in like many other physical cultures, women's participation has been increasing. But what allowed women to develop careers in mountaineering? And does women's presence in the mountaineering culture constitute a disruption of the masculine structures? Emmanuel has conducted very interesting recent studies on these questions, and you can find the link to these publications in the show notes. The conversation you are about to hear is the second part of our recording session, and the first part focused on veteran runners and sport in later life more generally. You can also find the link to that first part in the episode description. So let's get into it then. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Yeah, I think next I would really love to move on to your new work that is coming out that you've been working on for some years. And and this is about mountaineering and hillwalking and especially women's careers in these activities. For example, the article in Qualitative Research in Sport, Exercise and Health, you provided your personal reflections and now you have work coming out with extensive interviews with women who have developed career in mountaineering. And since you emphasize this historical context and and looking at these cultural and structural forces that enable or hinder us from developing certain careers and trajectories in, in sport and physical cultures, Let's first start looking at that context of mountaineering and what has enabled women to come in. Yeah. So that has been um, a long history and that, um, and, and quite a complex one to an extent. Mountaineering is really a recent pastime, uh, which really started, let's say, at the end of the um, 18th century, early 19th century and which appear to involve mostly men, actually, um, you know, and British uh, men in particular, who would go to Europe and explore alpine summits um, and alpine landscapes. Um, But there were always women who were involved as well, but we didn't know really very much about them, um, or their their voices were silent, uh, or they themselves didn't really write um, about their experiences. In fact, there's a recent book by Kerry Andrews where she has unearthed the voices of women, some of whom I had never heard of. 
and I think there's there's a bit of work here to be done uh, to unearth uh, these these unheard voices. But nevertheless, uh, leaving this particular point aside, women were always minority participants in this developing sport of of mountaineering and and climbing. And in fact, in in some cases, particularly in the early 20th century, they were actively uh, discouraged or excluded. And Switzerland in particular forbade women uh, from forming themselves into clubs or from joining uh, mountaineering clubs and using um, the huts that had been built um, for for mountaineers. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. I, I was quite surprised by that particular history um, as well. So in 1917, women were actually excluded from uh, mountaineering clubs in specific areas. And in the UK, for instance, uh, women had to form their own clubs. So there's, for instance, the Pinnacle Club, which I think was formed in the 19. 19- 20s or maybe a little bit earlier than that and the Ladies Scottish Climbing Club which was formed in 1908 and so these became refuges as it were for women to be able to develop um, their own climbing. However class uh, comes into play here these women tended to be you know women from privileged backgrounds who had the time and the resources and also perhaps the benign Ascent of their families, um, sometimes husbands, to be able to to pursue a career in mountaineering. Now, when I use the term career, I don't necessarily mean a professional career. I simply want to emphasize by using the term career that we don't just become runners, mountaineers, tennis players, or whatever, from one day to the next, or even physically active people. It requires a journey, it requires effort, and and, and going through you know, a series of, of staging posts which confirm our belonging to this particular uh, field of, of activities, and which is also tied up with identity so that you can claim to be a runner or you can claim to be a mountaineer or whatever else. Mm, So that's what I mean. It's really to render, to make visible the various forms of work and uh, that are necessary to be able to, at some point, stop and look back and say, oh, yes, I'm a runner. Oh, yes, I'm a maintainer. Yes, I'm a climber. So it has been... um, quite complicated you know for women to become uh, to become mountaineers in their own right and to be recognized and to be accepted and even to attract funding for instance to organize um, expeditions and that i think is really uh, significant so what the women have had to do is yes create their own spaces where they could then scale themselves and go out into the world and mm. explore mountain uh, spaces there have also been particular developments which actually have enabled women or have created a space for more women to perhaps uh, come into contact with uh, mountaineering, with alpine sports and say, oh yes, that could be for me. So in the UK, for instance, it was uh, the creation of Atwood Bound, which was an organization dedicated to encouraging outdoor pursuits and which made a specific a decision in, in the 1950s to attract uh, more women. Generally speaking, the increase in, in leisure in, in Europe in particular and the uh, introduction of paid holidays, the creation of networks of uh, youth hostels, 
campsites and so on were beneficial for uh, for women who started, you know, venturing into the outdoors, um, either in groups or or in mixed groups or or in groups of women. So it has been um, a long history. Having said that, women continue to be minority participants in mountaineering, both in professional terms, but also in, in leisure terms. And there are particular patterns in which women go out into um, mountain or wild spaces, as I call them. Being based mm-hmm. in Scotland, mountains are quite wild here. Yeah. And you have also written about and analyzed your own experiences and what enabled you to develop a career in mountaineering or hill walking. I I guess I have to ask about this identity question as well about who who can claim to be a mountaineer and who can claim to be a hill walker. So that's a maybe second part, but maybe just share a bit of your own own biography and what were those moments that stand out as important for you in terms of your own own career and access to the field. Yeah, so so back to you know the the kind of broad historical and translated into policy developments. I My own encounter with mountains was when I was age five and I went on a skiing holiday. I'm French, so um, I did this in France, obviously. And the goal of sending kids out on holiday camps to do skiing and other outdoor pursuits was part of, you know, a very explicit policy of developing the outdoors and keep kids occupied during the summer holidays, um, long summer holidays, especially as, you know, kids were no longer involved in farming, for instance, especially urban kids. So that that was my first encounter with mountains. And that concept was a very happy one. I think it rained quite a lot. And I, I don't think I had a very good time or I certainly didn't discover a particular gift for skiing at that time. But what I wish to do with that particular paper and this these, um, let's call them autobiographical and also ethnographic reflections is to think about the impact of history and how that in Uh, affected me, but also the continued impact of of gender relations and how women can sometimes put their bodies in in motion. So I I continued skiing. I would go on skiing holidays, you know, throughout my childhood and and teenage years. And arguably, you know, when you're skiing, you're in and on mountains, but you don't really venture very far. It's it's a fairly industrial way of organizing mountains to make sure that you can put lots of people on the mountains, but you don't really venture very far, you know. But mountaineering um, was a complete happenstance. I started going out with a guy and he was interested in in climbing and mountaineering. And he said, let's go on holiday. And I said, okay. And my parents went along with it. They provided the money to buy a rucksack, you know, all the gear that I needed, crampons. And um, and that was that. But then when I, I stopped the relationship, that was the end of my mountaineering career. So it lasted for a couple of years. That's it. And mm-hmm. and then another uh, chance event, ev- event was coming to Scotland, uh, not for mountaineering purposes, but to improve my English, which is slightly ironic. And I realized there were mountains there. And I thought, oh, how, do, how does one get into them? And it took 
a long time before I met someone who said, who encouraged me to go into maintenance, and he happened to be a man. So this particular paper was a reflection on, as I said, history, but also how gender relations continue to affect women's lives. And in this case, these men opened doors for me. It took me a, a long time to get through that door. But I think that was a significant, uh, fairly significant. I had not encountered clubs, you know, like climbing or mountaineering clubs. I knew nothing about them. And in any case, I wouldn't have been able to join them because to, to join those mountaineering clubs, you have to be, you have to be proficient to begin with. Um, so I needed to do my own apprenticeship before I could even consider um, going into women-only spaces. So men continue to play a, a major role, I think, in the introduction of women into mountaineering. Yeah. I mean, in your recent work, you are then writing about experiences of many women who you have interviewed in Scotland who are active members in, in the culture. And so I'm curious if that kind of patterns that you identify in your own experience, whether those seem to be prevalent in, in other women's stories as well, or whether there's something new or surprising in, in their pathways. I would say that class is a is a is a really important thing. Although now I would consider myself to be a very middle class woman, uh, when I started skiing, I was a you know I came from a very working class background. So the fact that um, particular policy forms of policy making in, in France had given someone like me the opportunity to, um, for instance, to go on, on a skiing holiday was, I think, a fairly exceptional. A lot of the women that I interviewed, particularly the older ones, looking at their professional, occupational uh, trajectories, are very much from aspirational or strong middle-class backgrounds. So I think class continues to play a role in making it more likely or less likely to engage in a sport like mountaineering or, or climbing or hill walking, as, as, as we might call it in, in Scotland. So I think that's where my own trajectory Uh, might be slightly different from the women that I interviewed. Having said that, the younger women that I interviewed and the women who are not in the club, they also had a, a more, uh, one of them in particular had, you know, also claimed uh, to be from a very working class background and university had given her, had opened the door to her for for uh, hill walking and, and mountaineering. So I think we, a, a lot of it seems like chance encounters But these chance encounters can only take place if structures are loosened, as it were. And sometimes specific decisions are made to bring, for instance, women into a particular um, activity. And I mentioned uh, with Bound and, uh, earlier on, uh, so some of the older women that I interviewed were introduced to mountaineering in this way. And, and for the younger ones, university played played an important role. So the opening out of a higher education to a much wider range of people will also give these people an opportunity to discover, they may or they may not, but certainly they will be more likely to discover mountaineering um, or other forms of uh, cultural and other leisure activities through university or certainly did 30 years ago than would have been the case had they not, especially for, for women, because men 
could encounter mountaineering in slightly different ways uh, without necessarily going to university. So, you know, it's it's really trying to... My research, my, my data is, is collected using life history interviews. And I use life history interviews precisely to chart the biographies and to see how women narrate themselves, but also to try and, and identify the various factors, structural and otherwise, which will intersect with those lives and give them the direction that they eventually um, get. So it's to try and get a really dynamic approach to analysing and identifying the conditions which make it possible for someone to become a maintainer. So so Mm. the first thing is, how do you encounter it? How are you more likely to encounter it? And then, you know, obviously get going and forge a career in it. And in your work, you are noting that certain stereotypical understandings of gender are rehearsed in terms of how how the women talk about men's way of approaching mountaineering or their motivations and the way they practice it compared to how women might do that. So perhaps we can talk about that aspect a little bit. Yeah, that's, so that's a really interesting one. And I think it's actually quite messy in some ways. So I, in the last um, five years, I've been reading lots of mountaineering books, you know, accounts by uh, mostly men, I, I have to say, of of mentors. And of course, I'm on Facebook and I, I, I have joined a couple of groups on Facebook. So I I kind of know how men narrate themselves. And th- there is an increasing production, as it were, amongst women uh, of also talking about themselves and talking about their experiences in, in print or in video for that for that matter. Now, What's interesting about uh, mountaineering is that there are very uh, strong do- narratives that dominate and that seem to explain, uh, account for what men and what women do. So, you know, the, the fiction and, and biographical and autobiographical um, productions that exist seem to give it credence. So uh, I'm not dismissing it. It's really strong that men aim for the summit They want to bag as many summits as possible. They want to be first, fastest, whatever. And everything else is collateral. Whereas women might um, have, uh, might be less individualistic, uh, might be approaching mountaineering more from a collaborative uh, perspective, team-based perspective, uh, you know, and, and so on. And in particular, also might have a different sensibility to mountains, you know, in line with their perhaps more caring characteristics. So I think these are important to take into account because in some ways they can be quite dangerous. It means that they render invisible other forms of narration and they might also have a performative function in that they reinforce uh, particular gender differences, um, especially uh, around caring and, and emotions and so on. Now, it turns out that, you know, in everything that I've read, Uh, yes, some men are pretty goal-driven and they certainly do not have to run the gauntlet of the media if anything happens to them and they leave behind a wife and children in the way that women would, uh, as we saw with the example of Alison Hargreaves um, back in the 1990s who, who went up uh, Everest and then six weeks late, later went up K2 and died on the way down leaving behind two children. And uh, certainly in the British press, she was castigated, despite the fact that she was dead, uh, which is terrible. 
but mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the justification for for her actions uh, was was called into question uh, quite vehemently. Um, so certainly men have not had to deal with that. But I've also read a lot of um, books by men who had have a lovely sensibility to world spaces. And, and of course, when I interviewed some of the women, one of them said to me, you mentioned wandering around mountains. She said, we don't wander. We want to aim for the summit. We, we collect those summits and we want to get to the top. And I thought, oh, fair enough, <laughs> you know. So the mm-hmm. women can be instrumental and goal-driven as well. It's just yes. that they need to find a way of justify- justifying their presence in, in a field which has traditionally kind of rendered them invisible, if not excluded them. And they also need to contend with the body. You know, the bodies of men and the bodies of women appear to be quite different. Men uh, walk much faster than women, and um, the women need to find walking companions with whom they can be independent, um, autonomous, equal participants, and at the same time walking at similar paces. So inevitably, that takes them to other women. And this is where the women in some ways, you know, find their own legitimacy and their ability to be mountaineers in their own right, which is by walking with other women, people who walk at the same pace as them and who will therefore not control the pace or the outing itself uh, or the navigation for that matter, which can be very dis-killing if someone is always on ahead and say, as, as you catch up with them, says, right, okay, we're going this way, then that's it. You haven't got time to check your map or your compass or your GPS, and you end up being a follower. But it seems that these very uh, gendered narratives continue to be used by the women to give them a sense that what they're doing is appropriate and, and justified. Mm. In your article, that is about to be published there you also mentioned this that the women would more often talk about their approach is more about enjoying enjoying the mountains and then that you mentioned that there's almost this uh, spiritual component to that so just out of curiosity because spirituality is something that I've looked into in some of my work did, did your participants talk about that or elaborate on that in any any further detail no <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't really something that was, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's it's part of it's part of the narrative. But uh, you know, I I've read um, books uh, by men, for instance, uh, a Scottish uh, mountaineer who is dead now, um, Hamish Brown, and I I remember some of his descriptions of of climbing in winter in in Scotland um, in the nineteen thirties, being really lyrical and and almost quasi religious. There was, mm-hmm. you know, something about the way that he he described those um, snowy slopes, w- which was really moving. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yes, I and I was struck by the extent to which the women um, are quite similar to men in some ways, or certainly similar mm-hmm. to the stereotype of the male mountaineer. But they certainly do approach the the walk when when women walk together, and I've walked with the women, some of the women I've I've interviewed, or at least um, some members of the club, uh, from uh, of of whom these women um, are a member. And there's definitely a more team based uh, approach, 
uh, and a, a willingness to support other women, particularly women who are slightly less experienced. So for instance, I'm not experienced at uh, as experienced as some of the other women in climbing. And, and so, you know, I, I've been taken on, on their wings, um, which is lovely. Yeah, I, I think it's such an exciting time in terms of your writing and your research is showing that more women are now finding opportunities, also possibly through their university, gaining access to the field. And one of the tasks that you set up for yourself is is figuring out whether this women's growing presence that we are witnessing in mountaineering, does it constitute a disruption of this very masculine narrative and and these structures that surround mountaineering? So are, are we seeing some kind of disruption in that? And how do you, I'm not asking you to foresee the future, but maybe just some reflections in terms of where this physical culture might be going in terms of that women's presence yeah yeah so women you know are still only about a a, a quota and sometimes only about 10-15% for instance of of winter mountain leaders so women still experience uh, inequality for instance in finding jobs in mountaineering and climbing and and the harder the, the profession, so for instance, winter climbing, the fewer women we will continue to find. And and I have heard anecdotally uh, of, for instance, French women uh, climbers who who've experienced who have experienced fairly recently quite a, a few obstacles uh, to be able to be accepted into into their chosen profession. I think when we talk about the disruption of, of a field such as mountaineering uh, or others, it's not just about whether women are in or out, so that's obviously really important, but it's also about mm-hmm. the culture itself and about yes. whose voices are heard or prioritized or given greater primacy and whose voices are um, uh, silenced. And I think definitely having, first of all, a broad definition of what constitutes mountaineering is is absolutely important we we don't need to go climbing in winter i you know um or we don't need to go up everest to be able to 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 justify the label of mountaineer to to ourselves so it's making sure that the field itself and allows for a, a a range of practices and just as I would say for the runners, conceive of mountaineering as a practice of freedom so that women can encounter mountaineering and say, yes, that is for me, but also I want to do this because it gives me access to various forms of of enjoyment, which may be spiritual or otherwise, or just simply reaching the summit and and bagging as as many hills as possible, uh, such as the Munros in Scotland. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about that, but yeah, (laughs) big part of your your biography as well. (laughs) That's right, yes. Munros. Maybe just in one minute, you can share with our listeners, I haven't heard about that before reading your work. So what are those Munros? (laughs) Just quickly. So Munros are... What we call mountains, so they've got mountain aspects, which are 3,000 feet and above, or um, 914.6 meters and above. And there are 282. There are also Munro tops or subsidiary tops. Uh, but the, the Munros themselves, uh, there are 282, and they're named after the, the person who first uh, started creating that list, who was Sir Hugh Munro in the 19th century. 
And there are 282. And so a, a common pastime in, in Scotland, or increasingly common pastime in, in Scotland, is to bag them all, as we say, bagging a Monroe. And once you've done that, you write to the Monroe Society to say, that's it, I've done them all. Uh, and you are a completer. And, um, and you're given a number. And I'm number 6,177. And uh, of Monroe completers who have recorded their um, achievement with the Monroe Society, because not everybody does it, um, I would say that uh, there's about 25% of, of women. At the start, there were hardly any, maybe a handful. But in the last few years, between 2015, no, 2011 and 2016, then the, the, the proportion started rising to about uh, 25%. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there you go. So that was a little interception, yes. So we talked about going to the mountains, having an inclusive definition of what it is and whether you go wandering, like you mentioned, or whether you want to go bagging those Monroes. So having this more broader and more inclusive culture. And encouraging women to write or to make their presence felt, I think. I think that's what I meant by the, the kind of changing the culture. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, trying to find those women a lot of women do blogs now and they'll do podcasts particularly some of the younger women younger climber climbers uh, record their experiences in, in print or in video form and i think that's really mm -hmm. important um so that we know they're they, they do exist and they're there and they're wonderful they do some great mm -hmm. things yes and new forms of social media and it's fairly easy to set up a blog and develop online communities and share experiences and and so on yes what's interesting though you were talking about you know whether the field has changed and there's something that's just come into my head a lot of men actually or some men do not understand why we have to why we need to have women specific spaces or seg segregated spaces and they, they they keep saying well it's up to women whether they want to be climbers or mountaineers nobody's stopping them from doing so so i think we need to continue having an awareness of the history of mountaineering and as a history of exclusion but also you know pushing the point that forms of exclusion are not necessarily about forbidding um uh, actively uh, by you know with rules But that cultural exclusion continued to play a big part in people's lives and in people's heads. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will certainly link the work that you've done. Hopefully this other very exciting article is published also very soon. And I can list, list that to our show notes as well. And yeah, just to say thank you so much for finding the time for our conversation. I learned a lot and... I'm sure that the listeners will as well. I so, hope so too. And, and thank you for having me. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for 
forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.